0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of At the Margin. Today I'm joined by Professor Brian Lucy of Trinity College Dublin. Brian is a professor of finance and has carried out a lot of research in recent years on cryptocurrencies. Today he's here to tell us what they're all about. We we'll go through some of the basics behind crypto and blockchain, the dynamics in the market, and Brian offers some words of caution for any central bankers that might be listening and might have one eye on digital currencies. Uh, We go through some of the potential pitfalls that could be waiting. We move on to other areas of financial markets, including the recent GameStop Wall Street bets short squeeze. Professor Lucy has done some really interesting work analysing the sentiment expressed on Reddit threads to see if this really was a case of all the little guys standing up to the man Or whether it was actually just a lot of little scared guys following a few heavy hitters. We discuss NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Um, These have really only entered the public consciousness uh, quite recently. And Brian takes us through what they are and where they may get their value. So this is part one of a two-parter on crypto. Here we cover a lot of the ground and go through the economic fundamentals. With a second part lined up to discuss more recent trends in crypto markets. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends and share on social media. Okay, I'll leave you to the conversation. Brian Lucy, thanks a million for joining uh, today to speak about, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies mostly, um, and something we're all familiar with, we hear a lot about them, Hear a lot about them in the, in the news, and I, for various reasons. But maybe we could start from first principles and tell us a bit about what exactly is a cryptocurrency and how they came about.
1: Well, indeed, Nile, and delighted to be on the uh, on, on, on the show, as it were. Uh, I think you've built up a really, really interesting block of stuff over the last while and filling a, a very interesting gap in the and a needed gap in the, in, in the blog sphere in the podcasting sphere. <laughs> Cryptocurrencies are one of the uses of blockchain. Now, this, I think, is where the first fundamental thing comes into play, which is that when people think, if they haven't been studying or, or researching it, which most people have the good sense not to be, uh, if they if you think of blockchain, they may have heard of blockchain in the context of Bitcoin or Dogecoin or you know some of the cryptocurrencies. When, in fact, all blockchain is, in some senses, is, a better way of keeping a ledger, keeping a, a track of what's happening. There are technical advantages and I, I'm not a computer scientist and I am not uh, an expert in the various aspects of uh, hash equilibria, cetera, hash and hash cryptography, et cetera. But if you think of a blockchain as a way of uh, ensuring it's kind of like a, a write only ledger. You, you can write something into a ledger and it can never be erased. Now you might lose the key to the ledger, but you can't lose the ledger. You can't lose the material in the ledger. So that opens up a whole pile of potential uses around tracking stuff, tracking things like trade credit, tracking things like um, shipping finance, tracking anything really where you want to have an irrevocable record of when it will pass from one stage to another. Whether that stage is going through a, a, a canal lock or going through me to you ownership. Uh, is you know is is irrelevant. It's passing through stages. You have a record which is constructed in such a way using advanced computers, uh, cryptography. so that nobody else can uh, overwrite that and claim no, actually it didn't happen. So that's blockchain. Blockchain has therefore been around for for some time. Cryptocurrencies. Uh, let's break down what let's break down what they are. Um, they they were invented really by uh, Satoshi it's it's fair to say uh, Bitcoin being uh, being the granddaddy of them all and the crypto here stands for cryptographic in other words going back to our idea of blockchain there is a computer cryptographic approach basically a set of passwords a set of secrecy protocols which mean that this once done cannot be undone and a currency so that you can use it to exchange between various people for goods and services. Now, we could, and you probably should, do a program on the history of currency, uh, because currency, in some senses, is whatever people are willing to say it is. We've had situations where people have used dog's teeth, bits of uh, stone, shiny shells, shiny metals. Currency is whatever people are happy to accept as a currency. And the idea of... Bitcoin was that it was a decentralized, cryptographically protected currency. So the three parts of it, the cryptographic, let's take it as as, as read, It's based on the blockchain. It's cryptographically ensured in, that you can't undo an action. And it's decentralized in that it's based around peer-to-peer. So people might be familiar with the idea of peer-to-peer lending. So Niall has uh, some surplus funds. Being a prudent gentleman and Brian mm-hmm. uh, being imprudent, the, the ant and the grasshopper need some cash. Brian can go to the bank and the bank take a look at him and say, Not near Nelly, we've enough bad debts. Uh, or he can go to the peer to peer lending markets and say, you know, uh, cha ching, you know, new train tracks. Remember all those ads back in the Celtic yeah, Tiger yeah, days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Niall says, Grand, you seem a fine upstanding gentleman. I'll give you a thousand euro and I'll charge you 8% interest. Nothing whatsoever wrong with that. That's decentralized peer to peer lending. This is peer-to-peer as well, in that you don't have to go through any central clearing organization. If if Nile wants to sell me something, uh, okay, bar we go when we actually, yeah. you know, like the mark, you know, just hand over the pound notes and spit in the palm.
0: You know, I always think about it like if you're buying a second-hand car and you go to the person's yeah. house and you're buying the yeah. car and then you say, right, well, how are we going to pay? And usually you go to the yeah. Bank of Ireland app and you're showing the yeah. person, I've paid you the money. And we're relying yeah. on trusting the bank to be that middle That's person. right. You've
1: got an intermediary. You've got an intermediary. Yeah. And the pure peer-to-peer is you simply pull out a wad of, of, of 50s and give the money over. And that's fine as that's, well.
0: Yeah.
1: But you, you, you're relying on Bank of Ireland. You're relying on Stripe. You're relying on PayPal. Uh, you're relying on the Swift Transactions Network to ensure that money gets transferred from point A to point B. The decentralized nature of cryptocurrencies is that the money is transferred uh, electronically hand-to-hand, as it were. So it goes from my wallet, to my electronic wallet, to your electronic wallet, and it is there. And because it's on the blockchain and it's cryptographically uh, protected, we can't back out of it. What's done is done. So it's safe in that sense.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's
1: what that's what a cryptocurrency is in in essence. It's a decentralized, peer to peer, um, computer built, computer aided, password protected way in which people can exchange tokens and that's all money ever is Mm. uh, tokens for goods and services
0: ideologically you can see that there's benefits here that okay we've no middle intermediary that we're dealing with so we can trade directly with each other and some people might place a greater value than others on that but if we think about are there economic benefits of having that um uh, having that intermediary there or it What's driving the, the, the proliferation, I suppose, of, of, of cryptocurrencies? Okay, well, these are
1: two separate questions. Uh, what are the economic benefits of having peer-to-peer decentralized versus a more centralized approach? The advantage of peer-to-peer is that it's instantaneous, and it reduces, therefore, friction in trade. And fric- reducing friction in trade is generally seen as a good thing. That's why, for example, we have had the euro to reduce friction in trade. Yeah, there are downsides to it, but... The upside is you no longer have to incur exchange rate losses or exchange rate costs. So from the perspective of trade, having something that's swifter and decentralized should facilitate increased trade. The problem is this. When you have the Swifts and PayPals of the world, they act in a way to allow, um, they're like plumbing. They're, 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 They're like the kind of the the water treatment plants or the the sewage treatment plants, they aggregate lots and lots and lots of streams of small income, and they have the ability and the flexibility to ensure that the other side gets paid. They're not quite the same as a central clearinghouse for for, for, for futures and options, but they act in a similar similar way. So they provide a degree of scale, uh, which is difficult to achieve with peer-to-peer, which means that larger-scale transactions can be more easily carried out in that way. Yeah. They act as an intermediary. That's why we have financial intermediaries. They provide a sense of scale. They provide a degree of liquidity for the system that a decentralized, disintermediated system can't easily achieve. Now, why there's such a proliferation of cryptocurrencies is another day's work. Um, but the idea of a cryptocurrency, there's nothing whatsoever problematic about it. It's just another currency in some ways. You mentioned the word ideology, and I think that's something that is impossible to get away from when you start dabbling in this area. Many, many, many of the people who are strong advocates for cryptocurrencies come from a libertarian tradition, which is fine. Uh, and they also come from a perhaps a hard money tradition, where the idea is that the worst thing we can have is a fiat or floating currency, where the temptation is always there for the government or the central bank to devalue the currency to clip the coins, to add copper to the gold, to pour out more money, quantitative easing, ultimately, this is all they say going to end in disaster, inflation, and the ruin of us all. Whereas with cryptocurrencies, they are designed generally in such a way that there's a limit to the amount of tokens that can be created. And therefore there's an intrinsic cap on the value of them. So it's not easy to get inflation, uh, to get the kind of inflation we're used to in that context. From the perspective of the libertarians, it's hidden. It's the same as using cash. The government can't track what you're doing. Uh, Elon Musk and PayPal can't track what you're doing. The Sprite Brothers, who can trust Valaiso and Limerick, Rarely, they, they can't track what you're doing. It's between you and your conscience and the counterparty. So there are two, not by any means, they, they overlap, but they don't have to overlap. Two strong ideologically coherent groups that like the idea of cryptocurrencies. And as again, there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that. That's These are perfectly perfectly respectable ideological and political and, and economic schools of thought. One can disagree with them, and, and I do, but you, you can't say there's anything wrong with it. And they have a point in some ways.
0: Sure. Um, and then, so that sort of brings me on to thinking about where the value of the cryptocurrency comes from. Because when we think about why we use a traditional currency, it's a means of exchange, it's a store of value, but with cryptocurrency it seems to be more speculative in nature that there's a lot of volatility. Um yeah. maybe you could just say a bit about that. Um is it a case that like is there any for like is there any state of the world where the value of cryptocurrency could settle down and it could be used um as we would use, like we'd have this confidence to use it as a store of value or as a as a means of exchange?
1: I think this is the interesting to me Paradox at the heart of some of the cryptocurrencies, which is that uh, I am Mr. Crypto. I think fiat currencies are pointless because all they are are mutual sets of agreements where people agree to swap pictures of bridges or dead queens or dead presidents uh, in exchange for goods and services. I'm sure that's nonsense. Instead, trust my piece of computer technology, uh, which has no intrinsic backing to it, yeah. and is simply a, a, an electron state. This is why hard money advocates often like gold, because say, well, gold actually has an intrinsic value, and, and you know it's, it's got uh, it, it, it's got something backing it. It's got you know uh, an ability to be used ultimately as adornment. It's got an ability to be used as industrial. It's got an ability to be used in dental, etc. Uh, so even if you take away a lot of the fraud in the gold market, there's a, there's a floor. It's that it's 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 a commodity. Um, from there to go to say, well, cryptocurrency has 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 a, has a value is to me very problematic. I think it has no more value nor no less value than pictures of bridges or pictures of you know dead famous English men and women or American presidents. Um, it's simply a means of exchange, and, and there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that. The problem with cryptocurrency as a store of value is, as you said, it's incredibly volatile. Uh, it reminds me of the old market adage: "You can eat well or sleep well," and if you have a loving for risk, if you've Preference for skewness, then cryptocurrencies are the place to go. You can make enormous fortunes on them, and then you can lose those fortunes very rapidly, at least on paper. I'm sure people have gone to bed, multimillionaires, and woken up back to normal, and vice versa. Well, I, I personally would just do my head in.
0: Literally, you can't because it's 24 hours the market, so you have yeah, to, yeah, you have, to yeah. very, you have to have a, a very, uh, uh, I don't know, have your stop losses in place before you yeah, have to have a lot of stop losses <laughs>
1: in place. To walk away, it's like the Kenny Rogers song. Yeah, no to huddle and no one to fuddle. And you know.
0: So because, of, so what's driving all the volatility then in terms of in terms of crypto prices?
1: The mechanics and, and, and the the microstructure of of cryptos are still a bit of a black box. There's the first thing to remember is these aren't actually very big as markets. I mean, they're very big numbers. Then you know they're millions and billions and trillions, but as markets. They're actually quite small. If you look at the amount of money traded in FX markets, foreign exchange markets, these are minnows. And the smaller the market, the more easy it is to manipulate. I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. It means that any given player has more strength in a smaller, less liquid market than they do in a bigger market. If you wanted to try and, for some way, you know, rig or influence or or, or move. The uh, you know the the, the euro yen exchange rate, you'd want pretty deep pockets. If you wanted to move or manipulate or, or, or shift, particularly some of the second tier cryptocurrencies, you'd need much shallower pockets. So anybody who comes in who thinks you know there's a killing to be made here or there's you know profit to be taken here, uh, and and starts dumping in millions, they're going to move the market very quickly. And then you've got the fanboy element. Where people jump in on board because it's a kind of a meme stock. It's a bit of a, it's a fun thing to get involved. You know, everybody can download a crypto uh, exchange onto their phone and you know trade away. And it, it's a bit of crack. It's a bit of fun. It's the gamification of uh, of finance, the Robin Hood approach. You know that has a part to it. But you know, make no mistake, big players are active in these markets. The big investment banks, the big insurance companies, the big Asset managers and hedge funds watch these markets, and they have the firepower and the twenty four seven monitoring capability to move in and and, and move very quickly and we 've seen that some of these big moves can uh, you know, can very rapidly unwind or inflate the market
0: yeah okay and what you so a lot of the so if we think over the last year sort of in huge booms and you know ebbs and flows when it came to the cryptos. Did they come from, like, are you, is, is it possible to pinpoint what maybe, what sort of moves sort of w- would have driven that? Or is it just general, like a behavioral thing that people just get on board to try, try to ride the crest of a wave?
1: I think that there's much more of a behavioral aspect to this. Um, if you look at the research that examines what causes crypto markets to move, Yes, you can get a lot of explanation from the traditional macro movers, economic policy uncertainty, and concerns about inflation, et cetera, but an awful lot more remains unexplained than would be the case in a traditional market. So what's what's missing are the sentiments, the moods of individuals and uh, players in the market, the behavioral side of it. We know that behavioral-based bubbles and slumps, which are just inverse bubbles, uh, can inflate and deflate very rapidly, and we also know that in a market like this, where you've got many, many assets which are not quite homogenous, but they're very similar. If you feel you've missed out on the Litecoin bubble, people might feel, okay, well maybe I'll move into Dodgycoin, or maybe I'll move into, you know, Nile Coin or Brian Coin or something else, um, or, or even start your own coin and try and get on board that train. And, uh, and that's very easy to do because it's decentralized, it's computerized, it's got very low barriers to entry to create coins, to create tokens. and um, Therefore, as we see in stock and bond markets, when individuals lose or when, when, when market bubbles spread, they spread from a couple of uh, events, which may have some underlying economic rationale, and people then start saying, "Well, I'll go to somewhere else, which is similar to it, and it's going to benefit from the fact that, it's, for whatever reason, couples to the initial uh, bubble stock or, or bubble uh, bubble asset." And you know, the whole market starts to rise or fall, and that's why you get these synchronized bubbles, or not synchronized, but you, you get similar patterns of bubbles and slumps across, broadly speaking, across uh, crypto markets
0: so you've done research on like crypto uncertainty index and one question i i don't know if your paper addresses this but one question maybe you could just tell us about your paper but one thing that that i always find interesting is like is there a lot of retail investment going on here and can you maybe if you can pick out why we have certain uncertain certain factors of driving uncertainty can this tell us whether we have a shift towards retail investment and that would explain a lot about what's going on and if we're moving more towards institutional investment uh Maybe perhaps it might be a better, it might might give it more legitimacy going forward, I wonder. Yeah, stability.
1: So the Crypto Uncertainty Index was inspired by the um, economic policy uncertainty literature, which has really um, been invented in in some senses uh, in the last decade. Hmm. And um, the idea is that to monitor discussion around terms that would be associated with uncertainty or uh, instability in a market, uh, in an appropriate way, and to then try and create an index based on that. Yeah. So you can create an index, but then the question is, what moves that index, as you said? So that paper um, has got a lot of downloads on the Social Science Research Network. We, we created two indices, one on price and one on policy. They're very closely related, as you might imagine. When you try and decompose the movements of the crypto and currency index, the crypto uncertainty index, the Ucry, what you find is that you can get a lot of explanation from the traditional macro stuff, particularly around issues like inflation expectations, interest rates, and economic policy uncertainty, uh, various policy uncertainties. A larger proportion remains unexplained than would be the case for the Chinese Economic Policy Uncertainty Index or whatever. And that has to be the behavioural aspect of mm-hmm. it. Um, that's, in a sense, the bit that's being explained by its own lags, which is, you know, just code for saying, you know, it's explained by itself and that's explained by itself and so on infinitum. And that has to be the behavioural side of things. Uh, so an unanswered research question is the extent to which we can use these uh, own determinants of economic policy and certainty indices as measures of the behavioralness or otherwise of various aspects of uh, various aspects of the economy, part of the reason we haven't seen that, and I noticed a bit of a digression, is there are relatively few pure uh, asset uncertainty indices. There's a, uh, I know there's a uh, there, there's an oil price uncertainty index, and now there's a crypto uncertainty index. We don't have that for other assets, although that's an interesting area to go down. You don't have, for example, something like um, a, regular, a reporting requirement where, let's say, you want to look at commitment of traders. You want to see the extent to which they're short interest in, uh, in in U.S. stocks. You can look up on a you know reasonably frequent basis the commitment of traders, and you can see how many traders are shorting particular stocks. Mm. You can't. See, you can look at mutual fund flows, money fund flows and see broad movements in asset categories. You can't see that in cryptos right now. But what we do know is, we do know that two things are happening. One is, don't forget, it's not just the existing stock of cryptos that are being traded, it's also new cryptos that are being mined out. Because to create a new token, to go back to that idea, mm. you have to what's called mine uh, Bitcoin, or you know, analogously, That effectively means solving a computer, uh, solving a mathematical puzzle using high-powered computing uh, techniques. And if you can solve it properly, if you're the first person to post that solution to the blockchain, you get that Bitcoin or that Ethereum or token or whatever. As you have more and more, it's structured in such a way that as you have more and more of these mined out, it becomes exponentially harder to mine the next one. Mm. So there is an enormous amount of computer power being devoted now to trying to solve these cryptographic puzzles to solve in a way that gives you the Bitcoin. Which this means is that it's the barriers to entry, the days when you could mine out a Bitcoin on your PC at night are gone. You require banks and banks and banks of high-powered supercomputing Level uh, equipment to even get into that game, which means that new cryptos are increasingly being mined new existing cryptos are increasingly being mined by large-scale enterprises. Uh, the biggest source of crypto mining right now is China,
0: right. particularly
1: the west of China, where there's a both abundant coal and um, coal and wind energy, also uh, Siberia.
0: And the, so the mining process, and I, I could be completely wrong here, but is that essentially you're writing a new line on the ledger. It's like a new entry into exactly. the ledger. And it, it yeah. gets more and more difficult because there's more uh, transactions taking place that you have to, have to log, I suppose. Or... There's more
1: transactions taking place. And it's also designed in such a way, if you think of the page on the ledger as being a token,
0: mm.
1: who gets yeah. the right to turn the page to the next blank page? You know, if you think of that analogy. Yeah. Um, if you imagine that each page is locked and you have to solve a, a password, if you get a password, how do you get the password? You solve a puzzle.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: First few is easy. As it goes on, it gets harder and harder. The puzzle gets more and more difficult. Password gets longer and longer. Yeah. Once you have opened up the page, however, yeah, you have the right to basically, in a sense, not quite sell it, but you, you have the right to charge uh, the community at large. They will pay you for the new ledger page.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, And then each person will use a bit of a ledger for their own transaction.
0: And so.
1: Because of that, it requires, uh, as it gets harder and harder and exponentially harder and harder, the energy requirements uh, and the physical capital required. You're talking now about, you know, mining rigs that are upwards of a million euro being the standard entry. So that's not something that you and I are going to get.
0: Yeah. This is big players. And. So you, I know you've written on the environmental impact of that, and that'll be interesting to discuss. But another thing is, if you come back to the whole issue that it reduces the transaction cost, the friction between tra- trading, isn't there an issue with Bitcoin that it takes slower to process the transaction? Or there's a delay? Maybe I don't know if it's related to that, but that perhaps yeah. is, is, a, is a factor there.
1: There's a couple of issues around that. Yes, in principle, it takes um, it, it's an instantaneous way of transacting. Mm. But in practice, it's not, because particularly early uh, blockchains are, are not particularly good at being updated. Yeah. So if I want to go and buy a pizza with Bitcoin for whatever reason, if I go in and buy a pizza with my, you know, my my, my Bank of Ireland debit card, I tap on the machine. The lady behind the Domino's counter is confident that I've paid for it because you know it's you know, seven or eight euro. The money has gone from my account directly transaction approved they know it takes a couple of days because that's how the banks make their money they keep the money yeah. you know in, in 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 the markets for two or three days but they know that they're going to get paid the bank of if i pay by bitcoin you've got two problems one is it may take some days for that money to hit okay so you're at no disadvantage but two the very volatility of it means that you might have had a pizza which cost you 7,000 euro,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> or you might have a pizza which cost 7 cents. Um, you still have your pizza. The pizza's long since eaten, and the crusts are torn out to the crows, and Domino's are looking, saying, well, we did well, or wow, we really did bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, So from the perspective of the vendor, uh, it's... Uh, it's risky. It, it, it's, it's a bit of a lottery. Now, how do you get away from that? You can only get away from that if you've got uh, if you've got better, better blockchains. Yeah. The other question is, what is Bitcoin used for? And we say we keep saying Bitcoin because it's the biggest one on the on, on, on the markets. But you know, what are these used for? And the answer is it's not entirely clear. There is some work being done uh, by guys in Cardiff and Reading looking in more detail at modern modern. I mean, these things are around for less than a decade, and already the early days have been taught of as thought of as the zone age, but modern as in the last six months. Yeah. Mo- modern activity. Um, on, on the blockchain, but there are some well-researched work by people like Sean Foley in in, in uh, Australia, which showed that very large chunks of the transactions in the early and middle years of Bitcoin and by analogy other um, other uh, cryptos were on dark web or mm-hmm. criminality. So that kind of laid a bit of an original sin on these. That you know it's only kind of. Sort of child pornographers and gun traffickers and drug runners who use it. And that's not that's not really fair. Um, you know, there, there there are actual transactions take place with this. But the other thing driving it, of course, is the pure speculation. So we go back to the issue of store of value,
0: yeah. no.
1: Uh medium exchange, yes, and increasingly becoming a medium of exchange.
0: It did actually become more of a medium of exchange. And you see, one thing I see in Dublin is a lot of barbers accepting Bitcoin, and I wonder why because What's a barber. Uh, <laughs> well, back when, when uh, back in the pre-pandemic days, when we all were able to go to barbers. Yes, for those
1: listening, for those of you in the future, <laughs> we are not
0: love their haircuts. Yeah, um, if you, if you do the Rona. But there are, you see them. See places like that taking Bitcoin. But um
1: suspect if you walked, if you suspect if you walked in and said, "I want
0: to get you know a number two with Dave," <laughs> here's some Bitcoin. They'd say, "Yeah, yeah, walk
1: on." Sure. But uh, I think a lot of those are completely wrong my suspicion is a lot of those are they're trying to attract a particular genre a particular group maybe a particular set of people you know it's the average person in Dublin you know does not wander around with a pocket full of bitcoins no they wander <laughs> around with a pocket full of cash
0: no, definitely not. They're not using Bitcoin. But but if we if we were in a world where people actually uh, we were using them for transactions like that, and we moved away from the old-fashioned currency, and we're now moving trading in, in Bitcoin, and then the government want to you know control the money money supply for whatever macroeconomic yeah. reasons, I, I imagine that would dilute the effect. And it
1: would, but this is why governments are moving uh, very very rapidly into the idea of digital central bank currencies. Right. Digital central bank currencies are they're not cryptocurrencies, but they're they're part of the digital currency movement. From the perspective of a government which wishes to control its population's economic activity, and I don't mean anything nefarious by that, I just mean, you know, if you want to be able to influence and control what people do and how they do it and prices, etc., which is you know what all governments want to do, a decentralized uh, peer-to-peer currency is is difficult because you have no lever. Hmm. you've no lever of which you can pull it's entirely driven by market activity
0: so when you, when you mean uh, control you mean speed up spending or slow it down depending on what way we're in the business
1: speed up spending, slow it down you know, influence prices directly or indirectly You know, use money market instruments to influence the availability of credit, etc if you lose control of the money supply you lose control of the economy this is where you can see the libertarians beginning to kind of go like yeah and that's a bad thing why? I'm not aware of any successful libertarian uh, economic experiment. Libertarians who say that to, are very reminiscent of uh, hardline communists in the 1970s. Ah, it just hasn't been tried properly. But but the point is this, from the perspective of a government, with the increasing ubiquity of non-cash-based trading, and that's the thing that we've seen in the pandemic. Mm. I mean, there was a period of time last year when I genuinely wondered you know, when was the last time I used cash? I think the only person in my house last year using cash was my nine-year-old son to go and buy ice cream. Yeah. All the rest of the time, we were just using tap and go or credit card or whatever. From the perspective of a government, that's really much more advantageous because a digital central bank currency is basically saying, we have a digital euro or a digital yuan or a digital dollar. It means that we can then directly inject that money Into your bank account, into your wallet. Of course, Mm. the converse is they can also digitally
0: take it away. (laughs)
1: Um, So, this is where I would begin to have a little bit of concerns about this. But from the perspective of a government, having a digital central bank currency means that they can do helicopter money very easily. Now, this is where the libertarians are now beginning to kind of run around screaming with their head on fire, going, We're doomed, we're doomed because helicopter money is, you know, they would much rather, I think, have plain all quantitative easing yeah. and actually governments giving people money directly. But giving people money directly is, you know, is, 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 is a well understood way of injecting demand into a demand deficient economy.
0: So let me just get my head around this. So if we have, it's a digital currency, it's, you mean, do you mean like existing euros, only very much based in the digital realm, as opposed to maybe in notes and coins?
1: If you think of it, I mean, the vast majority of currency exists in digital form anyway. It's not in notes and coins. And uh, you know, when when currency is created, it's created ultimately as a balance sheet entry. And uh, you know, the actual physical monetary base, M one, is is small. Uh, So, for a government to basically skip the whole tedious business of the banking system creating money via you know loans and deposits.
0: Yeah, and go directly yeah.
1: to saying instead of you know option A is we tell the lads in Sandyford to you know run an extra shift and we produce another you know couple of hundred million. Yeah. I mean anybody who's seen Money Heist and, and if anybody hasn't seen Money Heist, you've missed one of the best series <laughs> out there. But you know in in a digital central bank uh, environment, the professor isn't taking over the, ex- the the Bank of Spain and running the uh, running the printers. He's just hacking in somewhere.
0: Okay, I understand now. Yeah.
1: They, 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 Instead of running uh, running the money presses and creating bales of notes, which are then distributed out to the population, you simply you know, press a button, add another zero, and that money is there to be distributed. Right now, we don't have that. Uh, but if we had it, the government could tomorrow morning say, you, know, you get 1,000 euro, and you get 1,000 euro, and you get 1,000 euro. Um, the idea is it's very easy to helicopter money to demand drop. From the perspective of a government which wishes to have more control of its population, moving or forcing the population into a digital central bank, into a digital currency environment, gives you an economic panopticon. If you can look and see where every penny is being spent, I mean, you could really think about how you could take liberal paternalism to the nth degree. You You go and you go and try and purchase Uh, Your goods, and they go, Sorry, you're not allowed to purchase. You've already purchased, uh, you know, uh, four bottles of wine this week, and you're only allowed to have two bars of chocolate, so you have to put them back,
0: yeah, yeah. Or,
1: Sorry, uh, you're poor, and uh, social welfare won't allow you to buy ciggies lottery tickets uh, and children's comics. You can, you know, porridge only for you, please, yeah. Uh, Now, that's taking to an extreme, but you know, as WB Yates. Said in a debate in in, in the, the Free State, Challenge, You know, gov- no government has the right to create an instrument of tyranny against its own people. And state then it will never be used. I would be very, I'm very cautious of these. And I think this is the ultimate way in which cryptocurrencies might fail. That their very popularity addresses, uh, uh, makes the governments aware of the fact that this potential is not just there but is real, and that there's an appetite out there for people to utilise electronic communica- electronic money as the norm.
0: For the non-economists, uh, when they hear the words, oh, government controlling what we're doing, it, it's more a case of government, like in the pandemic, where we're not spending, trying to help us to spend more, to make it, to guide us towards what's best for the, the country as a whole, and then maybe pull back when, when we're starting to spend a bit much. And the traditional ways of doing that are, Bit convoluted through bank, the banking system, whereas now we can use cryptocurrencies, and that might be a bit more of a direct way.
1: Well, big it, digital currencies, of which cryptocurrencies are a subset.
0: But but so cryptocurrencies could do it in a more direct way. That maybe perhaps well, digital currencies can that 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 is more direct. But also maybe the government can see exactly what you're doing, and that's not necessarily that can be good and can be bad. It depends on who's who, who's at the controls. Um,
1: Exactly, and cryptocurrencies are cryptocurrencies are private currencies. Ultimately, uh, digital central bank currencies are public currencies. You know, and then you've got a fascinating debate about private versus public money. But you know what? This debate has been played out numerous times, and we are all aware of Graham's Law, and we're all aware of what happens when you have competing currencies and debasement of currencies, etc. So, you know, this this debate is not new. Many, many, many of the advocates of cryptocurrencies. I think it would be instructive to take a course in economic history and to realise that the kind of debates are are not new. I mean, even within the United Kingdom, you know, you've had environments where you've had had private currencies, but you've you've, you've the ghosts of private currencies with different banks creating money, which is then irrevocably fixed at par versus the versus the, the Bank of England note. I mean, if you want to push it to the log, to another extreme, you even have that to some extent in the USA and in the eurozone, where you've got different regional banks creating monies, and then they're all fixed apart through some central coordinating mechanism. Uh, those are the, that that's you know that's the penultimate stage to to a single unitary currency, but. Um, you know, we, we've had periods of time where you've had well, governments creating money and banks creating money, and they've competed. And sometimes that's not ended in a particularly pleasant way. Um, cryptocurrencies are the modern version
0: of that. So, in terms of how how it would have panned out in the past, and how what lear- what lessons can we learn from that going forward? Yeah,
1: banks fail. You know, banks fail. If, if you if you look at uh, it, you know if if you've got notes which are uh, on a bank and the bank fails. what what worth are they? I mean, we're all familiar with the idea that national currencies can float against each other. And the floating is seen as an indication of the market's perception of the underlying health of the economy. There's no reason why you can't have private currencies where the floating against other private or public currencies is indicative of a market perception of relative strength.
0: Ah, okay. Well that's interesting because it's all so basically it's all built on what we believe these are worth. And that but that belief is built on what we expect them to be worth in the future. And oh yeah. It's yeah, a complete yeah, bubble yeah. in many respects.
1: To some extent so you could you could think of it as that. And and fiat currency is an ultimate bubble. It's completely built on trust. I am happy to accept a fifty euro note from you because I know I can go down to Centra and they will take a 50 euro note from me. And on it goes. It's a, you know, it's 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 a peer-to-peer trust network. Money is ultimately that. Now, the question really that cryptocurrency, in some senses, is trying, or some of the advocates of cryptocurrency are trying to address, is the following: We've seen instances where trust is lost in public money. Therefore, we need a way to ensure that that can't happen. How do we do that? One way is to have a hard currency where it's physically backed or it's it's backed by something which has value, which is attractive. But of course, that ultimately means that we have the problems of the eurozone writ large. Uh, if you've got something which is irrevocably fixed uh, you know, against a certain quantity of other stuff, then you are going to have situations where a certain Parts are under and certain parts are overvalued, with no easy monetary-based way of fixing the economic dislocation that comes from that. And therefore it's thrown onto the real economy, which means you have the kinds of things we saw uh, you know, in the Eurozone for the last 20 years, which are difficult to fix. Well, Bitcoin ultimately will be fixed. There'll be 21 million Bitcoins. And what then? What what, what happens when the last Bitcoin is mined out? And we've all moved to Bitcoin. And now we have this fixed unit against which everything has to be the numerare. As time goes on, with any modest degree of inflation, things become the inverse of the Argentinian and uh, Austro Hungarian experience, where instead of things costing 10 squilling billion uh, euros or whatever, because we've all lost trust in euros they're you know that's uh one to the minus 19th of bitcoin please yeah 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 and i'm wondering if you know if that's any improvement of where you're at
0: um and one thing i want to move on to is nfts and this is something that i only very recently became aware of and i imagine Um, a lot of people (laughs) never even heard of but nfts non-fungible token i presume is what it means Uh, it's like it's my understanding it's basically where you you put a you put a value on on it's like a certificate of ownership for maybe something like a piece of art, and then you can trade that uh, as opposed to maybe a certificate of ownership, of something that can be that like like a like a, a coin that's fungible that can be one can be traded right. for another. Um, yeah. How did they come about? about, or, about the, how did it work? I suppose I
1: think go back to the issue of tokens. Um, non non-fun, non fungible tokens uh, NFTs are are pretty new. They're not span new, but they're they're new in the popular consciousness. Michael Dowling of Dublin City University has written a few papers on these. And in fact, there's going to be a conference uh, on non-fungible tokens, Bitcoin, etc. Uh, in, um, in December, if people go to www.ffea.eu, you can see that conference. And I think that could be very interesting. The nice thing, uh, the, the really interesting about non-fungible tokens is that you don't have to have ownership of the individual underlying assets. You can take, I can take a picture of my dog, very nice dog. I can sell then the picture of the ownership of the picture of the dog without actually selling off the woofy itself. So you're breaking the link between the physical or the underlying and the and 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 the, the, the financial or the derivative. NFTs are basically if you think of them as digital derivatives. Now the funny thing is, of course, that let's say I buy uh, the very first tweet that Jack Darcy sent, which somebody did, they created a token and they sold it, absolutely nothing whatsoever stopping me going on the web, looking up first ever tweet and printing off that. Uh, if somebody says, oh, I have an NFT of Brian Lucy's dog and I paid 27,000 euro for it, uh, you know, they can very easily go on, on the web and look at a picture of a dog or a similar dog, or if they know me, they probably have a picture of the dog, and they print that out, if they really want to own it. So, NFTs are a little bit a little bit strange. They're a way in which digital content creators, ultimately, can monetize value for their digital content, where each token is non fungible and where they are giving a guarantee not to themselves create a token, a further token, but there's nothing stopping anybody else from creating something very similar. Where its value comes from is it ultimately a sense of ownership of uh, of something that you believe is intrinsically worthwhile, a piece of digital art, a piece of land in one of the new Second Life, Second Comings, uh, a token of, like, for example, uh, Kinze Ken, Ken Whiskey recently uh, raised significant sums of money on a, an NFT based on whiskey.
0: Because I, it's very hard to get your head around what exactly it is. Because when you think about art and you buy a piece of art, you can you can think about yeah. okay, I bought this physical product. And I was looking, I was trying to look at many different definitions, and one that that sort of yeah. that struck with me was for photographers, and they would take a photograph and they would then, um, like, well, in the old-fashioned days when you would have to develop a photo, but they would develop one photo and then they would sell that print and then they might another print might be sold, but it would be slightly different in that whatever way they would develop it would be slightly different or whatever they would, they would process it. So that's like a digital version of that. But I think your description of a digital derivative actually um, yeah. strikes a chord as well, actually, in a more economics yeah, I mean, it- sense. <laughs>
1: And Kinsale, uh, Kinsale Distillery was an interesting one, in that they had a they had a whiskey cask, and um, it was the old Cooley Distillery. Um, and the whiskey cask, they, they basically created a token on the whiskey cask, and they sold it at auction. The idea being that those who are interested in whiskey, who see whiskey as a um, obviously it's a consumption good, but it's also got interesting, um, it's got interesting investment properties, uh, whiskey and fine wines and spirits, etc. So they have now ownership of a token that says I am the owner. So they're owning the token that says they're the owner of the whisky cast. Yeah. Even though uh, in most circumstances, they're not actually going to get it. Here, because of the fact that they were doing it, A, to get money, but also to raise awareness, they're actually going to send the cast of whiskey to the owner, you know, as a token of goodwill. But they don't have to do that.
0: Yeah. It's a bit like if you want to support, like nowadays people support content creators and stuff like that, and, it, and all these sort of bloggers and everything. And you, yeah. you, you 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 like you'd see value in what they're producing, and therefore then you you yeah. give money to support that, and it's a bit it's a bit like that, and that the value comes from well, I think this has value, and I should support yeah. it in some way.
1: I mean, you could create an NFT, for example, based on your first ever podcast.
0: Yeah, we'll, maybe, uh, we'll see if that could actually. Which be... be an audio an audio <laughs> NFT. It would be an NFT that says, you know,
1: this is not its first ever podcast. And, you know, podcast is up there on article <laughs> and, you know, kind of wherever, wherever else. So nobody has to pay a penny to yeah. listen to us. Um, Don't
0: put ideas in my head. Um, but, you know, you could do that. There's no reason you, you couldn't do that. But yeah. you know? uh, well, one thing as well is uh, that our NFT is a bit like, is it a is there a bubble? Like people are looking for oh. something to invest in and this is a new thing. And I think this is the next big thing. Let's jump on that. Is, 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 that, is there evidence of that at the moment or? I,
1: I think there is. Um, part of the problem, and, and Dowling has done a very good job of trying to cut through the difficulties in collecting data on these. Mm. Um, part of the difficulty is collecting adequate data so you can get an understanding of even the price dynamics, never mind the underlyings, and whatever they are in this context.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, But we're in a world where there's still a frantic search for yields. Um Anybody who has served on an investment committee of an organisation or who is familiar with actuaries will know that there's still this idea out there that uh, you know get a three or five percent yield in the long term. We're ten years now into low or even zero-digit interest rates. Now this is going to change. Mm. Uh, historically, over the last three hundred years, we're at the lowest point we've been in the real interest rate cycle for for, for the longest. So this will increase. But right now there is a very significant Search for yield. And if you're facing a fixed set of outgoings or or a set of outgoings that are predictable, uh, you know, whether that's pensions or or insurance, payouts, you know, or just a general set of liabilities that you've you've modeled, you need to find a way to actually fund those. And if you can't stick it into into stocks and bonds, you know, you can you can put it in stocks, but you've got a volatility issue. You can put it in stocks to yield a high dividend, but you've got issues around managerial preference and taxation. Um, and you have an issue around actual yield. if everybody else tries to go in there. You can't really stick it in government guilts because you're getting the square root of nothing or, in fact, mm. you're paying for the privilege. you got to get the money somewhere. That's why we've seen the explosion, or part of the reason we've seen an explosion of interest in alternative assets. Not just alternative assets in the forms of digital assets, but... Every other form of non-traditional uh, activity, artwork, fine wines, uh, land, etc. So yeah. there's a significant search for yields, and I think NFTs are surfing on the the, the edge of that yeah. tide of money flowing around. By the way, I should state I should state that I am the world's most conservative investor. I by researching all of this, you know, I think like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> you're, you're enlightened,
0: perhaps. Put it, all in the, put it all in the credit union, put it all <laughs> under
1: your mattress, you know. So, uh, another paper I did just recently uh, on SSRM was looking at uh, GameStop. Yeah. And of course, GameStop was, was sold in a sense as uh, revenge and little guy. It's uh, disaffected youth thinking, we're going to stick it to the man, we're going to take on the hedge funds, uh, you know, we're you know, we're, we're, we're stuck in the pandemic, a lot of jobs, a lot of houses, we don't have cars. You know, what the hell is going on? GameStop is something we understand because we're digital. And we can, you know, uh, take on the big boys and drive GameStop's short squeeze uh, in a way we wanted to. Well, the evidence we found was that, and there's a few other papers floating around it similarly, is that in fact um, the predominant drivers weren't necessarily small investors. If you listen to the media, you'd think that nothing was discussed on Reddit or on Wall Street Bets or on stock tweets other than, um, other than GameStop. And in fact, that's not the case. It was a very small amount of discussions, relatively speaking.
0: Mm.
1: And the predominant emotions were not, um, anger or joy, but they were fear and surprise. Fear and surprise. Running, running the markets is not particularly new to anybody who's, who's seen
0: it. Yeah,
1: You do have an increase in the gamification, as it's called, of stock investing. You do have a democratization of stock investing. But most people are not very good at picking yeah.
0: investments. Yeah.
1: Most people are, and I include here everybody, including economic and finance professors, are really poor at long-term uh, planning. They're really poor at Discounting over time horizons that are longer than a couple of periods. Uh, They engage in every known and some unknown form of behavioral bias. And they're not great. This is why investment into index funds is so popular, because, you know, at least you never do any worse than than everybody else. Um, So I think the danger is that when you combine gamification with easy credit, with high leverage, you run the risk of effectively turning the markets into even more of a casino than they might already be seen as. Yeah. I mean, in countries where gambling is curtailed or difficult to access, that instinct finds an out in the stock trading, among other activities. Yeah. I'm not sure it's in the long term interest of the economy or of companies. To encourage that kind of activity.
0: So, m- could you maybe could you explain your um, your paper a bit more? So you were looking at at the sentiment that was expressed on on Reddit, the Reddit threads that were behind the whole short squeeze. So basically, a lot of like a lot of the public perception of what was going on there was it was people on these on these uh, Reddit threads that were. All these memes, diamond hands, all the sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were trying to push the, uh, push the, uh, the, speak it up to the big guys. But your research yeah. was saying, well, how many positive comments were made versus negative comments?
1: Yeah, we were doing a little bit more than that, I think. We, yeah. we were looking at this in high frequency. So we're looking at a one and five minutes intervals, um, for the two months of the, 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 you know, the, there was a 1950s movie called Reefer Madness. And I think of this as Reddit, Reddit Madness.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, you can use machine learning and textual analysis to identify uh, the tone and sentiment of, of comments. Hmm. And you know, even if it's littered with emojis and whatever, you can you, you can basically, uh, you know, we know a, a you know a smiley face emoji is smiley, is happy. A sad face emoji yeah. is sad. And you can get more subtle than that. And the textual, uh, the text and the context of which they are. So we were looking at issues like. Uh, longer threads, threads with more comments, are definitionally more popular yeah. and one would imagine more influential. Yeah. So, how does the sentiment change across shorter versus longer threads? You okay. know, if I put up a thread and read it and nobody responds to it, it dies, clearly has no impact, really. If you put up a thread and 4,000 people respond to it, you've hit on something. Mm. Uh, and the emotions within the short and long threads, the motion, the emotion, comes out as Vader, um, for, for a variety of reasons, it's called Vader, Vader Sentiment Analysis. But it's looking at surprise, fear, anger, etc. And what we found was that the predominant mood was not one of anger, which would be the case if people were saying, this is all the young you know, Robin Hood generation uh, sticking it to the man. Mm. It wasn't even joy, which was like, hey, we're sticking it to the man. It was fear. Crap, what's going on here? And I was surprised, yeah. holy crap, what just happened here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, if it was truly a revenge of the little people, minus Darby or Gill, uh, against, the, uh, against the hedge funds, you would have expected to see a different set of emotions to what we saw. Yeah. Um, in addition to which, yeah, the overall tone, whether it was overall positive or negative, had very little impact on prices. And we're looking at prices on a five and one minute basis. You know, So we we're seeing these in, in fairly granular time. And also, the amount of discussion on even something like Wall Street bets on GameStop was relatively limited. You had chunks of time when this wasn't discussed. So if it truly was, a, a similar kinds of papers have been done looking at stock twits and, and Twitter, but you read it was kind of the epicenter of it. Mm. Um, if truly this was about you know the revenge of the retail investor. You would have expected to have seen an awful lot more discussion, with an awful lot more clearly defined emotion, leading to an awful lot more uh, impact on prices. As it were, the the emotions had very little impact on price movements.
0: So it's not if it's not really the a lot of the people in the Reddit threads. Twi- is it a case of there might be one or two ringleaders that are that are the ones leading the leading the situation?
1: Yeah, I mean there are some uh, there there are some. Threads which are very, very large and they seem to have an overly large impact. And yeah. there are some people who were, let's say, early sentiment formers who also had a very significant impact on sentiment going forward. Yeah. So, like in most situations, by the time the average person gets on board the train, the train is moving in a particular direction and they can do little to influence that. Okay. They can decide when to get on and when to get off, but then difficult to influence the speed or the ultimate direction, of the, the destination
0: yeah. of the journey. And they're the ones who are expressing fear I suppose, and it's the, it's the people who are there at the start so there are, there are a few people who are perhaps happy but they're uh, the, the initial trendsetters and then the majority are perhaps the fearful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and
1: I mean, you know it, in in the same way, this is fractal and it was, I think it was a swift you know, greater fleas have lesser fleas upon their back to bite them. And lesser fleas, still smaller, yes, and so ad infinitum. In the same way as, oh, you know, Reddit is going to be democratization, and Robin Hood is going to take it away from the hedge funds. Okay, so that's the greater fleas of lesser fleas. But within all of these, you have then fractally, you know, greater fleas within the lesser fleas.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
1: So it, it's you know, it's fleas all the way down. This area is uh, this area is fascinating, and there's lots of really interesting stuff going on. Where my research is going now, I think is more much more rapidly than I thought towards textual based analysis. So I kind of perforce had to get familiar enough with Python to supervise people in you know, doing things with Python. yeah um, and finance grapples with how to incorporate soft information. economics in general grapples with how to incorporate soft information. And, you know, economists and finance economists tend to be people who take numbers and kind of regress them on other things and analyze Mm -hmm. them in a particular statistical toolkit. And that's fine, uh, but there's a lot of soft and and fuzzy information out there, which our colleagues in computer science have been grappling with. So they know kind of how to measure it, but they might not necessarily know what it means from an economic or finance sense.
0: Mm.
1: So I think that's where the fruitful crossovers are going to be
0: over next time alright well thanks a million Brian uh, I really, really enjoyed that Now, um, good stuff my thanks to Brian for a really interesting discussion and my thanks to you for listening to the very end if you like this a five star review on Apple podcasts goes a long way to spread the word to the unenlightened keep your ears peeled for part two which I hope to release shortly and until then uh, take care